take the view that if anybody's interested in this, they'll read the paper. Um, the presentation is uh, basically, uh, well, that's, that's, that's aimed more broadly to try, and let, to try and illustrate the trajectory of thinking, which you'll find in that paper. Okay. Um, I would like to acknowledge the support of the Leverhulme Trust, who have been supporting the Thinking Counterfactually project at Leeds, and during my downtime, as it were, my time off, I've been able to write this paper, amongst other things. Please visit the website. It's going to be spectacularly launched next week. Um, and that's an advert. <coughs> so, there's the abstract. I say that a pragmatic scepticism about metaphysical modality is a perfectly reasonable position to maintain. I am going to illustrate the difficulties and limitations associated with some strategies for defeating that kind of pragmatic scepticism. I speak about three strategies in the written version of the paper. Today I shall discuss only two. First of all, is this, there's the strategy of associating metaphysical modality with objective probability. And secondly, there's the strategy of associating metaphysical modality with what I'll explain as counterfactual invariance. Okay. So the paper has five sections as such, and it's always a good idea to begin with Quine. <laughs> Quine's hypotheses concerning the best available explications of two modal conceits of philosophy proceed as follows in my understanding. Analytic necessity has enormous potential cognitive significance for the conduct of science. For the best explication available, thought Quine, of analytic necessity or analyticity was an identification with the positivist notion of a priority, aka immunity to revision. That's the good news. The potential cognitive significance is enormous. However, the bad news is that the history of science gives us no reason to believe that we can reliably identify any statements that merit such treatment. Quine is an error theorist about analyticity in that sense. Again, Quine is quite happy to concede that metaphysical necessity has potential cognitive significance for the fundamental, the fundamental content of science. Of course, it's slightly anachronistic to describe Quine's views about metaphysical necessity, since he never coined the term. But when you look at the characterization of the necessity that he discusses in terms of the interpretation of quantified modal logic, it meets all the, de the criteria that one would naturally think. One can only suppose that Quine was being incredibly good-mannered in avoiding the tendentious term metaphysical um, and decided to leave it at that. But Quine's thought here is indeed that <clears throat> metaphysical necessity has potential cognitive significance. Why? For if you think that quantified modal logic is the logic of science 
And you think, therefore, that quantified modal logic enters into the canonical notation of best theory, you're apt to think that the intended interpretation of the modal operators has a fundamental metaphysical significance. That's the good news. However, the bad news, which has been around for some 400 years, is that reflection in best contemporary science gives us no reason to believe that quantified modal logic is an element of best theory, canonically stated. So that's my understanding of where Quine left these two philosophical conceits. Analytic necessity um, cannot be rehabilitated in terms of the conduct of science, although potentially that was its, its significance, nor can metaphysical necessity be rehabilitated in terms of the content of science, although that's its potential significance. So, on my understanding, a sensible Quinean scepticism about modality, about metaphysical modality, would basically rest with this thesis that we can do no better than with uh, we can no, <coughs> excuse me we can do no better uh, to explicate metaphysical modality than to explicate it as above. Quine's position was that no advance had been made in that uh, regard. Now, I'm not about to endorse that thesis. I'm about to use it as an instrument for exploring what I take to be the potential of pragmatic scepticism about metaphysical necessity. So, if one were minded to take on the Quinean challenge, two anti-sceptical strategies would clearly suggest themselves. One would be to establish a role for metaphysical modality in the conduct of science, and another would be to establish a role for metaphysical modality in the content of science. Okay. Now, <clears throat> whenever one gives serious uh, consideration to a sceptical position, or whenever scepticism raises, raises its head above the parapet, it very naturally draws methodological fire, that the sceptical position is unreasonable or it demands too much. So I want to say some things by way of convincing you that I'm a reasonable sceptic. I'm a reasonable man. <laughs> what scepticism is presently intended is not. First of all, I raise no question about the intelligibility of the notion of metaphysical modality. I'm happy to accept that it's serviceable and raise no such questions. It would be very unquinian, in fact, to raise allegations of unintelligibility against a project that had that status of development. Nor do I wish to promote scepticism that relies on unreasonably high standards for the award of cognitive accolades and adjectives. The game won't be to make truth aptitude of knowledge really difficult to achieve and then tell you that metaphysical modality can't achieve it. I'm quite happy to operate with minimal standards of truth aptitude, truth, and whatever other propositional accolades or uh, adjectives are going. I am not concerned to prosecute a case based on any kind of failure of reducibility. In fact, probably the most illuminating thing I can say to indulge my sympathy with the Quinean project is that I think that Quine would be answered if we could establish parity between talk of metaphysical modality and talk of the likes of laws 
causation, dispositions and natural kinds. Here's the Quinean footnote. It's absolutely evident that the conduct of science requires us to think and speak in terms of laws, causation, dispositions and natural kinds, even if we are confident that none of this language will be a feature of the canonical statement of best theory, and that there is no viable programme of reduction that takes us from one way of speaking to the other. I take it that that's precisely Quine's message in Natural Kinds, that the ultimate test for realism, insofar as Quine understands that metaphysical project, is representation in the canonical vocabulary of best science. However, the canonical vocabulary of best science is not the language in which one best conducts science. That requires the use of human language. That requires communication. And that requires insights which are put in terms which may not themselves be representers of the ultimate truth that physics discovers. This I take to be the Quinean position. So if one could make a case for metaphysical modality as being, as Simon Blackburn would call it, quasi-real in the way that perhaps these are, that would be an answer to the sceptic. One could give a role for appeal to metaphysical modality in the conduct of science, even, one, even though one thought that the metaphysically modal operators would not reside in the canonical statement of best theory. The analogous point uh, might be put like this. I'm not about to promote a scepticism of metaphysical modality that is based on an unduly demanding standard of indispensability. <coughs> Think about Hartree Field's position, or, or Hartree Field's classic position in philosophy of mathematics. Now, I take it that for the purposes of that dialectic at least, that Field accepts Quine's gambit. Um, if it were the case, that we were committed to using mathematical vocabulary in the canonical statement of best theory, that's what it would be to commit ourselves to some kind of mathematical realism. However, Field's programme is to precisely show that that need not be the case. Now, of course, one hardly need add, Field's point is not that mathematics is dispensable for the conduct of science. Mathematics is indeed indispensable for scientific communication. There may be expressive advantages of using mathematical language that can't be replicated without it. All of these things might be true. So the notion of field indispensability is the notion of a discourse that assists very, very strongly the conduct of science but need not be represented in anything like what Quine would call um, the, the canonical statement of best theory. So again, if we can establish that metaphysical modality is field indispensable, that would be a strong anti-sceptical result. <clears throat> Nor do I wish to back the idea that pragmatism or pragmatic scepticism is the new first philosophy. I am not taking the view that all of the concepts that interest philosophers ought to be approached such that pragmatism is a reasonable default or opening position. I don't believe that about ordinary models. I don't believe that about colours or morals 
or clauses or laws or numbers. But sometimes you've got to ask the question. Sometimes you've got to ask the question whether the project of developing what is essentially a philosophical conceit will stand examination against certain pragmatically sceptical questions. So I want to say that pragmatic scepticism about metaphysical necessity is timely. 50 odd years has been a good run. And again, I would not presume to open a discussion of concepts which are of philosophical interest, but which have deep and independent lives outside of philosophy with a sceptical prosecution. It seems to me that when concepts or language or predicates that express them, when we have evidence of the ubiquity, the entrenchment and the organic development of talk of morals or colour or causation, that strikes me as very, very strong evidence that there's likely something in it that there's probably something about our conduct among ourselves and with the world which is served by that way of speaking. Metaphysical modality doesn't get that pass. I want now slightly to refine the target. <clears throat> I'm going to target exactly what I'm going to call the concept of a necessity. A necessity is the concept of a necessity that is elithic, objective, non-epistemic might be better, uh, absolute, and which tolerates the inclusion of a posteriori cases. Now, uh, I'm not going to unpack these adjectives or these characterizations because everybody who's in the metaphysical modality game basically accepts this and thinks that these characterizations of the modality uh, are serviceable. What I'm not going to do is build something extra metaphysical into metaphysical necessity. Because some people clearly think that what makes necessity metaphysical is something explanatory. That what makes metaphysical necessity metaphysical is something about what constitutes the necessity or something about the way that we find out about it. I'm not going to bring those extra assumptions to the table. Now, actually, it might be that somebody would want to say that the best defence of metaphysical necessity against a pragmatic scepticism is precisely to buy in to that kind of further characterisation. That's, that's a strategy. Some people might think that metaphysical necessity brings a distinctive style of explanation, which is not essentially part of science, etc., etc. That's a strategy. But I'm not going to talk about that. All that I'm going to have in mind is what should really be an easier position to defend. That is the position that there is some pragmatic utility that can be associated with a necessity, as I've characterised it here. Alethic, non-epistemic, absolute, and which tolerates the inclusion of episteriori cases. <coughs> okay. Quine's allegation that we could do no better for a priori, a priority or analyticity or any concept that might be presupposed to be coextensive with it is not beyond challenge. And of course, one strong current 
in post-Quinean philosophy has precisely been to try and rescue or defend the notion of a priority by distancing it from unrevisability. And there are certainly strategies out there. In fact, there's two that I want to point out. One way in which you might think that a priority is explicable in a way that makes it more pragmatically useful than quite suggested is to establish a relationship between um, considering a, prop a proposition being a priori and it's having a certain status with respect to epistemic probability. Okay. Now, there are subtleties there, there are nuances. I mean, I'm not going to go into them because this is purely suggestive, but people have made that move. The other move, which I think is also very interesting, is that to treat P as available for deployment under any supposition about what's actually the case may also be a decent explication of what the a priori is. I mean, the, the second move um, is, is interesting, and it turns on the observation of an ambiguity of scope. To have the disposition to treat a proposition as having that status now is not to treat it as unrevisable. It's merely saying that given the way the web of belief is characterized at present, this is a proposition that might be so deployed. So it's not supposed to be unrevisability. There might be an argument that it collapses, but that's the idea. But here's the point. The point is that one can contrive exactly analogous conditions for the explication of metaphysical modality by appealing to variants on probability and supposition respectively. One consideration or one interesting proposition is that one might think that to treat P, uh, uh, to manifest commitment to the metaphysical necessity of P, and uh, to treat P as metaphysically necessary, might be correlated with treating P as having a special status with respect to objective probability. The second thought is that to treat P as available for deployment when developing any supposition about what's counterfactual of the case is actually the best prospect of explicating the pragmatic utility of the metaphysical necessity. So these are the two theses in which I want to concentrate for the remainder of this brief talk. Okay. Basically what I'm going to argue is this that the strategies face complementary problems. In the case where one tries to establish a pragmatically useful role for metaphysical modality by establishing a relationship to objective probability, the problem is with the relation. The problem's not the relatum. Objective probability is an essential part of the conduct of science. Talk about objective probability is essential. It's field indispensable, at least, to the conduct of science. It might even be quite indispensable. It might even be the case that the use of objective probability measures or functions occur very deeply in the characterization of fundamental physical theory. So if one can relate metaphysical modality to objective probability in the right kind of way, one has solved the problem because objective uh, probability is pragmatically impeccable. But the problem in this case is exactly the relation. 
What relation is it in which metaphysical modality is supposed to stand to objective probability in order that that transference of pragmatic significance might be affected? And in the other case, we've got the opposite problem. There, are, there is no, short of, no shortage of interesting theses that look absolutely serviceable and which relate metaphysical necessity in particular to some kind of characterization in terms of counterfactual, counterfactual invariance. Some people think that you can define the box of modal logic under its intended interpretation in terms of counterfactual and variation, right? Necessarily P is just P that would have been the case whatever had been so. So some people think that's right. Some people think you can analyze the concept of metaphysical necessity along those lines. Some people think that what's crucial to the epistemology of metaphysical necessity is that it should relate in the right way to counterfactual invariance so that our ordinary and unproblematic cognitive capacities with counterfactuals, I'm told, um, can be transferred to the modal case. So I'm going to try and argue that in the case of probability, the problems, the relation between metaphysical necessity and the explicandum. In the case of counterfactuality, the problem is the nature of the relatum. It's what it's related to that's problematic. And here are the considerations that I run through in the paper. So, now and again this idea pops up that metaphysical possibility is what objective probability measures are measures of. Objective probabilities are degrees of metaphysical possibility. Um, Dorothy Edgington makes this claim, Tim Williamson makes it relatively recently, and Van Frassen has got a variant on it. Um, Edgington, Williamson, Van Frassen, any of them here just now? <laughs> Didn't think so. <laughs> I had another line if it... <laughs> uh, actually, to be fair, um, Van Frassen is more circumspect. Um, he's not committed to a thesis about metaphysical modality. Uh, and when you look at what he does, it, cl it clearly can't be that. But the idea that there's a box-like modal feature that can be done in this way um, has, cro has cropped up again and again. Now, I want to make two kinds of observation about this, okay? Um, very straightforward and very simply, there's an extensional problem. It's just not obvious that any characterization in terms of objective probability is equivalent to any natural kind of modality. It's just not obvious that there's any number or range of numbers that you can get from a probability measure that you can map onto a diamond or a box. But even if that can be done, there's a second challenge that I want to discuss, and it's the challenge of what I call gratuitous association. Okay. So imagine, so I guess that a natural idea is something like this, that necessity is going to be correlated with having an objective probability of one, and impossibility is going to be correlated with having an objective probability of zero. Now, perhaps that's not what's intended, but let's just see what's problematic about it. Okay. So the first thing that I want to put aside quite quickly is that one would want to know 
where the standard interpretations of objective probability figure in that project. Um, there are out there um, these various, you know, so we've got the propensity interpretation, the relative frequency interpretation, something like ramsey carnap implicit uh, definition. All of these interpretations of probability are out there. So one would want to know how these moves fit with the project of relating objective probability to metaphysical modality. It's often quite unclear when these interpretations are put forward, whether they're supposed to be exercises in conceptual analysis, whether they're supposed to be metaphysical identifications. So that has to come into the mix. But let's get real, as it were. <clears throat> On at least some of the standard views about objective probability, um, objective probability for contingent events has got a certain kind of monotonic quality. So the idea is that if you take a contingent event um, like the, uh, the, the shooting of Kennedy, the thought would be that uh, there's one or more measures of the probability that's oscillating all over the place. Uh, then there comes a crucial time and uh, Kennedy's shot, and then you're doing your philosophical logic in such a way that the thing that gets the probability measure then settles at one and stays that way. Okay. So it was an open question up until it happened, but then when it settles at one, it goes on like that. In fact, that kind of measure it does, in many ways, work quite well to pick out a modality. It's a Diodorian modality. It's, it's, it's the fatalism of the past. It's the idea that the probability sets at one once you can't change the past. But of course, that's not what's intended by metaphysical uh, modality. Okay. But then, if that's, if that's so, um, the obvious problem is that um, a significant part of what's normally considered a contingent will be associated still with a probability of one at all times. Because if you, can, if you can make sense of the idea of the initial conditions of the universe, or what's logically settled by them, in virtue of the fact that they are initial, some people might think that there's a sense in which they're never open. Okay? They're settled, their non-integral values are settled immediately, and monotonicity means that they're going to actually stay that way. So that's one problem. Another problem is the threat from the continuum. Now, I hardly need to add that here we enter into a subtle territory. So this is the kind of place where you can easily make kit finds. No, actually, if you look at page 25 of the moral algebra, you'll find you've just said something inconsistent. Fair enough, that never happens in aesthetics. I'll take my chances. Um, <laughs> but there's a prima facie problem here, which I might not have articulated properly in the paper, but I've become satisfied in subsequent conversation that there's a problem in the neighbourhood. But he here's the rough and ready version of the problem. The rough and ready version of the problem is this, that when you've got a probability measure over an uncountable set, probability of zero does not correlate with will not happen. Okay? It looks as though the singleton sets of um, the real numbers between zero and one ought to be measurable in terms of what's called a Borel algebra, and if that's the case, their measure's going to be zero. So then you've got the classic idea that the probability of hitting any given point on a real line is zero, 
but a point you've got to hit, and one of them will be hit, so that's the point that was hit, even though the probability of hitting it, the prior probability was zero, so there's, there's no question of correlating zero probability with will not happen. A fortiori, there cannot be any question of a straightforward correlation between that and what cannot happen. That's the problem if you want to go for that kind of measure. Okay, but look, imagine somehow you could overcome the challenge from extensionality. Imagine you could tell a story about how, how what we're saying relates to uh, relative frequency. Um, you know, we're satisfied that we can solve the continuum problem. Uh, we're satisfied we can solve the problem of monotonicity. Okay, there's still a problem because the skeptical perspective is going to have it that to solve that problem is necessary but not sufficient to answer the pragmatic challenge. And here's why. The pragmatic challenge is articulated primarily by the first question. Why would you add a model discourse to probabilistic discourse that is so far free of the former? Okay? We can't appropriately motivate a commitment to a modal discourse simply by showing that once introduced, it can be positioned in relation to what we are committed to already. How in any sense is our commitment to objective probability improved by grafting modal talk onto it? Okay. The skeptic does not doubt that those who are already committed to metaphysical modality and to objective probability might gain some cognitive unification by establishing appropriate relations between the two. For a theory that's already committed to metaphysical modality, an explication of that notion in terms of objective probability might be a cognitive achievement. It might simplify, unify, or advance theory. But that wasn't the challenge. The challenge wasn't to improve a modal theory by establishing relations to probability. The challenge was to motivate the modalizing by showing how a probabilistic and more general perspective would be improved for that addition. And finally, I want to make one other point about this here. I guess that one thing that's quite seductive in this area is that there looks to be quite a strong platitude um, about the relationship between metaphysical modality and objective probability. And it's this, that if something's metaphysically contingent, then it ought to have a non-integral probability. So if something's metaphysically contingent, it ought to have a probability between zero and one. That, 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 that seems okay. That seems okay, yeah? But there's a long way to go from there to establish any deeper and more systematic connections. And I want to illustrate um, that a modal conception of probability is not inevitable at all. For I believe that there's a neo-Humean position, which one can identify with certain moods of David Lewis, which precisely attempts to sustain this view. In classic Lewis, matters of objective probability are orthogonal to matters of modality. 
In classic Lewis, matters of objective probability are more like matters of nomological status. They're matters that are settled within a world, not across worlds. Okay? So matters of absolute modality are matters of how things are with the totality of worlds, all of being. But matters of probability are settled within the world. If you sign up to, for example, the so-called best theory interpretation of what probability is, as a piece of conceptual analysis, then it becomes clear that, in fact, the nature of probability uh, values is going to be derivative from the nomological definition in, 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 in Lewis's case. So all I want to say is that a view of non-modal objective probability is out there. So one might wonder to what degree science and its practice could possibly be wedded to it. Of course, nobody's denying that once you have the nomological uh, uh, characterizations and the probabilistic characterizations on the table, you can add modality. The question was never that. The question was never whether it was feasible to establish some connections. The question is whether it was desirable to do so. Okay. Now I want to turn to the second strategy, the strategy of uh, relating necessity to cognitive invariant, uh, count counterfactual invariance. And, you know what, at the end of the day, I suspect this is what's going to do the trick. But today I'm being a sceptic, so I'll, I'll have to show you how it goes. This does start off with lots of good news, okay? The beleaguered there, the metaphysical uh, modalist, is, is, is swaying under the blows at this point, no doubt, and feeling desperate. Um, but the idea would be, if we can establish the right connections with counterfactuals, then we're well in our way. And here are some good considerations. First of all, um, the thing that I like about this move um, is that by relating modalizing to matters of supposition and inference, you're relating them to something that's cognitively absolutely central. It always struck me that this was a much more interesting and deeper move than, than making the move where you try and mess about with conceivability or imagination in the first instance. If you can relate the activity of modalizing to fundamental or at least important practices of supposition and inference, that begins to make it look to be bearing on something which is cognitively central and potentially very, very important for the conduct of science. Second thing is that counterfactual discourse itself is thoroughly entrenched. By the criteria of organic evolution, uh, ubiquity, uh, entrenchment in the language and languages, this is not, as it were, something that begins to look like a mere conceit or an accident. It's something that seems to be fairly deep in discourses um, across a whole range of languages. So given that counterfactual discourse seems to have a certain level of entrenchment in cognitive activity broadly construed, the attachment between metaphysical necessity and that again begins to look more promising. And again, as I pointed out before, there is no shortage of prima facie viable theses that might take you from uh, one to the other. Now, the one that I like um, is actually a quite a weak thesis. But basically what it's saying is this, that if you believe in the A necessity 
of a proposition, then you're going to be prepared to adduce it as a premise when you do any kind of counterfactual reasoning whatsoever. Okay? So the idea would be you take any Q, and if you're prepared to expand counterfactually the supposition the Q, if you're committed to the absolute necessity of P, then you ought to be prepared to deploy P as a premise in that kind of reasoning. Now, that's, I think that's a really potentially important point, really potentially important. Because the thing is with metaphysical modality, sometimes people concentrate on the case of metaphysical possibility, and then they really begin to wonder how it could possibly have any kind of purchase on anything that's cognitively significant. Because after we've gone beyond the nomologically possible, and then we're having these discussions about, do you reckon there's transparent iron? No, I don't. Well, you know the kind of thing, right? So, so, so you go beyond nomological possibility, and you go into the outre, that looks like a long march back to anything that's got cognitive significance, or significance in terms of the conduct of science. But that's the wrong way to think about it. The way to think about it is the relationship not between metaphysical necessity and metaphysical possibility, but between metaphysical necessity and counterfactual invariance. Because here's the thing. Counterfactual reasoning is notoriously problematic in all sorts of ways. But one way in which it's very problematic is due to its context sensitivity and the problem of what Goodman called co-tenability. Now, imagine I suppose that it had been the case that there had been no electrons. Well, what, now, now it's the name of the game. What, what, what else is co-tenable with that? What else am I allowed to add now? What, what's the scenario? Is, is the scenario where, uh, you, you, you can see how it would go. It's a problematic thing. But listen, if you've got a proposition that's got that degree of counterfactual invariance, you can do counterfactual reasoning without further ado. There's nothing about the context of the content in the supposition that should prevent you from deploying P as an auxiliary premise if you think it's absolutely necessary. So that's a massive advantage. It gives you counterfactual reasoning and aids counterfactual reasoning without further ado. There's an analogy with unrestricted quantification. Okay? If you really have unrestricted quantification and you want to know whether you're entitled to adjust that premise in a piece of quantificational reasoning, you no longer need bother about whether the quantifiers that have been introduced already are context contextually restricted or whatever. For if you are committed to unrestricted universal quantification, you immediately have an instrument at your disposal which is not sensitive to context or content of what's already been said. So this is promising, I want to say. Okay. So a modest strategy would be to aim to establish a role for counterfactual discourse and reasoning that's field indispensable. Can we now tell some story about how the relationship between necessity and counterfactuals promotes our cognitive needs and desires? Okay. Well, here's what the trick consists in. Here's the way that it would have to go. To meet the sceptical challenge, you have to identify a conditional that's got two features. 
One is it's got to be field indispensable, as I say. Somehow, to some extent, even weakly so, it helps us in our cognitive activities. We would be worse off without it than we would be with it, even if that's a very kind of modest being worse off or better off. But the second thing is that that conditional also has to have genuinely amodal significance. It has to be the kind of conditional such that invariance under it has got a lethic modal import. That's not as easy as it might seem. Here are four quick objections to that project. One thing that's obvious but which is prevalent in the literature is lots and lots of discussion, and especially discussion in psychology, to which philosophers often appeal, is very, very flat-footed and rough-grained about the classification of counterfactuality. It quite often just means any kind of thinking not, or thinking what you don't believe, or thinking offline. It doesn't distinguish between supposing that Oswald didn't kill Kennedy and supposing that Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy. So lots of it is just about reasoning from things that you don't believe. Now, I hardly need to add that not all conditionals that serve those kinds of expression have got modal significance. Okay. There is a fallacy of false alternative afoot. What we are not allowed to do here is infer from the alleged inadequacy of the material conditional for a given purpose the need to invoke a counterfactual conditional. Okay. It might well be that you've made the case that a conditional which is materially interpreted won't be any good for some purpose, but that doesn't mean that the next stop is a modal conditional, or one that's got genuinely modal significance. Example of the conditionals of connexive logics. Connexive logicians don't like the idea that you can say if P then not P. Okay? They think that that should be inconsistent. It's got a consistent interpretation under the material conditional, so they don't accept the material interpretation of the conditional. They don't take the connexive conditional to be a modal conditional. They don't take it to account of factual significance. So formally, at least, there's a gap between the material and the counterfactual. In fact, Ramsey makes exactly that move. R Ramsey says, well, look, the material conditional won't do for considering regret and blame, so we have to go for the counterfactual. That's the inference that I'm warning against. Okay. Ah, the Adam Ryger is here. Um, the effect, um, there's a massive threat from indiscipline. Is the logic of counterfactuals in good order? Well, that's a controversial matter. Certainly there's a radical absence of consensus commanding principles. This needs subtle discussion. Um, because what's clearly the case is that you can't get an easy win here. Okay? The very fact that counterfactual logic is controversial can't mean that it's indisciplined, but it can't mean that it's a bad bet. Okay? The logic of negation is controversial. The logic of the quantifier is controversial. But there is a question here about whether the logic of the counterfactual conditional is in a particularly bad state, so that there's an absence of consensus of a kind that makes it look a really bad bet. Finally, I want to talk about Dudman's Revenge. I don't know if, um, if, if colleagues are aware of this work, but basically, um, in, throughout the 80s, 90s, uh, Dudman and others um, had a whole 
there was a whole series of papers in which this kind of heterodox view of conditionals was advocated. It was very heavily grammatical and getting into issues of aspect and mood and tense and very, very sort of heavily grammatical analysis of what the conditionals were. But from my point of view, the significance was that they don't leave what we call counterfactual conditionals as modal. They leave them as things which are modified essentially with respect to tense. Let me just try and give a simple version of the point. Um, here's a very modest appropriation in one given case. So Dorothy Edgington thinks that the Dudman stuff's not going to work for all sorts of reasons, but she's tempted to what are called relocation theses. And that's the idea that when you look at a counterfactual conditional, you can always relate it to the assertion at a certain point in time of something that's simpler. So here's the way that it would go. Um, so on the orthodox view, you're all disposed to deny the conditional. If Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, then someone else would have. Now the Edgington type observation is that you can actually understand that disposition to assert just by making a certain kind of temporal modification. The reason that you think, the reason that you're going to deny that if Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, then somebody else would have, is because you're thinking, well, there's a, there was a crucial time at which it was objectively very important and probable that someone other than Oswald was going to kill Kennedy. And that, that's a, it's a quick, kind of dirty and quick example. But that's the flavour of the Goodman, th of, of the Dudman move. The Dudman move is that you can always recreate, recreate the effect of a certain subjunctive conditional by paying proper attention to tense and other auxiliary elements. Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to have to leave it there, obviously. I'm, I'm so sorry about taking so much time. Um, it might be, it might be, and I think this is probably where that part of the project ends up, it might be that for many or most assertable counterfactuals, something like the relocation uh, move can be, can be pulled off. It might be that for any given counterfactual, there's a field-like move in which you can, re, you, know, you can drain the modal content out of it and put something else in place of it. So for every counterfactual, just let field thinks about the mathematical case, for every relevant theory, there would be some way of rewriting it to make it nominalistically acceptable. Maybe it's the case that for every counterfactual, there's some way of rewriting it so that it's, as it were, uh, modalistically acceptable. However, with field, that would be perfectly consistent with an anti-scepticism. Because it might be that counterfactuals do something for us that we can't easily replicate when we don't have them at all. There's a difference between the absence of the counterfactual locution being damaging in any given case, where we might be able to do better or just as well, but that doesn't mean that we can do just as well overall if we never have that locution at our disposal. And I suspect that a demonstration of field, dispensability, field indispensability is probably the right way to go here. Um, if you could do that, then it would answer the sceptical question. Arguably, what it would do would make modal realism of various forms even more unlikely. But don't start me on that. I think that's enough for today. Thank you very much.